Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. I am so grateful that you are investing the one non-renewable resource that you've got, and that is your time. I promise we're going to take good care of you. If you're new here, double thanks. Your attention is valuable as well. Hope that we'll keep it for the next 60 or so minutes with a really incredible story. Today's entrepreneur is someone that I've admired from afar and long wanted to interview, who truly is disrupting in the in the clearest and, and truest sense of the term, uh, the, the energy sector, and, no, and most notably the energy storage sector. If you have not been paying attention to energy storage, well, pretty much everyone is trying to figure out the differentiation between long duration and short duration, lithium and anything else. And one company stands out as quite different from the others, Energy Vault. If you haven't heard of Energy Vault, they began in, uh, in looking at how gravity can be utilized to help us with the long duration problem. And the founder of Energy Vault, co-founder in fact, is Robert Picconi. Robert is the chairman and CEO, took the company public, uh, co-founded it with a few other bright minds like Bill Gross that you'll no doubt recognize. And today we're gonna dig into how and why this is the way that Robert has decided to spend the last number of years of his life and his focus on our energy transition. I do hope that as a result, you subscribe to the show if you haven't already, because that will ensure that you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this. It's clean energy founders on the front lines of our energy transitions, the startup advice that you need, the career journeys they went through to inform how you might think about your own. For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, I'm super excited, as I mentioned, because for two reasons. One, I haven't an opportunity often enough to feature disruptors in energy storage. As solar warriors, we know the impact that new technology is having and, and offering us as an industry to expand beyond being intermittent power. Storage is the bacon of the industry. We all know it. It's the thing that we all need and crave that's going to take us to 90 plus percent renewable grid that's going to effectively help us wean ourselves off of fossil fuels. No company has been as disruptive in my view, or few rather, have been disruptive as uh, Energy Vault has. And we have Mr. Robert Bacconi to thank for it. Robert, thank you so much for taking time out of a very busy schedule to come on Suncast. Good to see you. Yeah, Nico, thanks. Great to see you again. And uh, really looking forward to this. I love the work you're doing and uh, big fan. Thanks, my friend. I really appreciate that. The way I'd like to start is with a quote. It's one of my favorite quotes. It's from Benjamin Disraeli. Uh, and it says, action may not always bring happiness, but there is no happiness without action. I think that you are a man of action uh, as a serial entrepreneur. How does that quote land with you? Oh, it's, uh, I think, tried and true. And uh, I think there's a few different pieces of that quote, because just because you're acting doesn't mean you're always succeeding. 
Wow. Um, yeah. You know, so that's, that's, right. that's how that quote strikes me. Uh, mm. And of course, a lot of the measure of, of success is from falling down and getting back up uh, and taking a different path. And that's through your career, through learning uh, a lot of, a lot of personal um, pieces of that family, et cetera. So uh, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a, it's a great quote. At a 30,000 foot level, as someone who has had deep experience in the energy sector, who is an experienced world traveler and global business leader, how would you describe the problem that you have created Energy Vault to solve? What is it that you see that is really standing in our way in, in the evolution of our industry? Well, at the highest level, we're focused on solving a problem uh, to help address what's happening with our climate and the change and the heating up of the atmosphere that's having, uh, as we've seen in particular the last few years, these severe weather events uh, and strange events uh, that are happening in the climate sector that unfortunately are resulting in the loss of life. Um, and uh, just to mention last week in California, first time in 53 years that I've been in California to hear that there was a hurricane that came up along our coast. Um, so I, at the highest level, we are focused on a very specific problem of energy storage that will allow us to uh, hopefully accelerate the move to renewable energy uh, so we can uh, stop using fuels that's um, supporting, of course, the growth of our world and our planet um, and energy demand that's that's growing uh, always, uh, it, but to support it in a more sustainable way and, and help to uh, uh, begin to arrest the growth of the temperature of the planet that's, that's causing these problems. There are many who perhaps think they know Energy Vault or maybe haven't looked deep enough but have heard of the name Energy Vault. Why don't you do me a favor and introduce Energy Vault and why the company that you founded is going to help solve the problem you've just enunciated? Sure. So we we founded the company with a mission of decarbonization and a specific focus in solving that on energy storage. And energy storage is a very topical uh, element today that uh, is, I think, gets a lot of attention because it's a very difficult problem to solve. And I think people universally now understand that while wind and solar is getting deployed now in mass, unless we can store those same electrons that are generated in a cost-effective and a sustainable way, uh, it's going to be dif difficult for wind and solar to become dispatchable power like the current forms of, uh, of energy generation. So uh, I think in, as we looked at solving that problem, there were three main parameters that were important for us. One was just the urgency of time. So back in 2017, when we were solving this problem and, and thinking about different ways to look at it, we knew and felt the urgency. Um, Bill Gross, one of the co-founders, had been the last 15 years making companies that were focused on uh, solar technologies and optimization and innovation and in renewables broadly. Um, so we saw this problem coming and very important that we um, develop something that could initially get to market very quickly uh, for this aspect of time. The second thing was economics. So we wanted to also have a solution that could be deployed without subsidies and still be economical and still um, make the equation where you could um, still look at uh, deploying wind and solar, applying storage, and have that be somehow either on par or better than, than the uh, prior fossil fuel. 
And then the third thing for us that was important was sustainability. So we didn't want to solve one problem in renewable energy storage mm-hmm. and create any environmental liability. So for that, for those things, we um, we looked at the the energy storage market and looked at what today is the basis even of, of all energy storage, 90% of it, uh, are these pumped hydroelectric dams that are the based on gravity. Uh, wow. And so we yeah. looked at uh, coming to market uh, initially with a solution that can be a long duration solution and using gravity with the same concept uh, of the pumped hydroelectric dams, but instead of water that's traversing up and down and generating the electricity, uh, we've developed these eco bricks, uh, these environmentally friendly bricks, not using concrete and a structure essentially to lift and lower them. So we uh, developed that and brought that to market um, through a series of funding rounds. In parallel, we were developing the software platform to optimize and run that system but also to be a platform where we could distribute and deploy uh, any energy storage technology, whether we developed it or not. And so that software platform uh, is what we've used to also address short duration market with, for example, lithium ion batteries, where we have a unique way we solve that problem. And also uh, even the ultra long duration or multi-day storage need, for example, for microgrids, for backup systems, for cities uh, or for data centers. So, um, that's how we evolved the portfolio now and have uh, essentially began deploying solutions uh, last year in our first year. That's brilliant. One of the things that most folks who are familiar with Energy Vault will recognize is the concept of um, Energy Vault being focused on gravity-based uh, uh, technology and these eco-bricks. I want to just see if I heard everything correctly here because I, I like to try and summarize before I go on. Underlying the decision to build the business were three parameters. Time, we are in a sense of urgency. As you pointed out, Bill Gross has started numerous companies, many of which are focused on solving climate crises. Economics, we're in a world where traditionally, and even in our industry very commonly, the technology is bolstered by incentives. It's bolstered by, if not tax incentives, then some other um, uh, economic um bolster, uh, crutch, if you will. Uh, And there are definitely markets, I worked in Latin America a lot, where solar in and of itself performs at grid parity or or better compared with the alternatives, fossil fuels as an example. Um, So how do we deploy without subsidies and still be economically feasible? And then the third, sustainability. And you actually hit me with something that I didn't expect. Don't solve problems that create others. I see that as a uh, I immediately, my mind went to lithium because everyone's like, oh, chicken little, the sky's falling. We're using uh, cobalt and they're not wrong. Lithium is not a like sustainable, in quotes, long-term solution to our energy storage needs uh, at the scale that we need them. But pumped hydro <laughs> has its own challenges, right? Um, it has its own, uh, it, We not only can we not scale our storage needs with pumped hydro, but it is um, generally um, at the scale of, of dammed water storage, extremely disastrous to the ecology around uh, hydro systems. So um, that that took me by surprise. As I know that the pumped hydro is still the largest uh, source of renewable energy in most of the world. But I think so. I think I heard you right. And then the gravity based system, based system, which we'll talk about, and how that evolved, and software, which is itself the 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 enabler of the evolution of energy vault as i understand it is that accurate All up to now yeah you got it you got it <laughs> fantastic now i have a question around uh so as an entrepreneur you started and scaled numerous businesses 
So recognizing that, you know, timing is everything, um, as many VCs would. And, um, and there are num- numerous companies on the pyre of uh, started too soon. What needed to be true for Energy Vault to exist, for it to work? I think the timing is uh, one of the most important factors uh, for successful Faro, especially on the innovation front. And for us, one of the things that had to be true was there needed to be, in some sense, a burning platform or some event that was going to drive the world to say, you know what, we really need to solve this problem. And, and we really need to get renewables deployed and start shutting down our fossil fuels uh, and addressing the heating up of the planet. So th- that needed to be the demand catalyst. I mean, it all starts with, do you have an attractive growing market to serve? Uh, and then you get into what problem you're solving, of course. What was like an event or two that stands out for you in the last whatever decade that that was that burning platform? I think there were multiple uh, uh, severe weather events that it took human life. Remember the, the large fires in Australia? Uh, there was the flooding in Germany. We had uh, the Texas freeze uh, that took place a few years ago. And I think these events that took lives where um, even in developed countries, we were unable to cope. It, it sort of, you know, it's like, wow, we, we really have a problem we need to solve. Uh, that's one. Secondly, I think COVID sort of woke people up that you can have these events that happen that can bring the world to its knees. And go back to March 2020 when there was no vaccine in shape. Um, we were at that time sort of not shutting down the company, but we just froze everything, not knowing what the world was going to look like going forward. And so I think that had people realize um, as well that that there could be things that, that could happen that could fundamentally change the environment we live in and, and potentially uh, change the economics and uh, and how we go about our daily lives. So I think yeah. those were some of the big uh, events that then got, um, you know, investments funds, um, yeah. companies, countries coming out and putting a stake in the ground and saying, we, we need to prioritize solving this problem. I want to jump to that problem. Could you enunciate for me, who predominantly do you sell to and what problems do you solve for those clients? Yeah, we really sell to three main groups. Uh, and I would start with the public utilities. So these are the the organizations that that I think are most directly known by um, both residences, commercials, businesses, because they're providing the power. Okay, but there's a second group that serves them that are the independent power providers that are the ones that are most actively deploying renewables or standalone storage. Okay, so uh, those are the NL Green Powers of the world. For example, they're the largest global one. Uh, right here in the U.S., you've got uh, Jupiter Power, for example, and um, that is uh, the largest provider in ERCOT, which is the largest uh, storage market in the United States. By the way, both of those players happen to be customers of ours. Um, so that's the, the second group on the independent power side. And then the third bucket, which for I think is a little unique with us serving uh, because of the nature of our investor base also that started early on, are, are the large industrials that are large mm-hmm. consumers of energy that are making their own clean energy transition. So um, the, the mining companies, for example, mm-hmm. that are looking at different ways to power their trucks and locomotives um, or, or to power their their operations and plants, uh, any 24-7 manufacturing facility and even large players like Saudi Aramco that are, that are mm-hmm. some of the traditional players in in oil and gas that are, are making this transition. So that that area um, is fundamental, important, and, and, and even gets down to the folks that are uh, are looking in charge with making sustainable aviation fuel or new green fuels to help power our economy. So those are the 
those are the three main buckets. Thank you. That's really helpful. I think that there are folks who will be able to read plenty of press releases around work that you guys have done. We'll talk about some of them and how you've served public utilities. I think it's the large industrials that's a sector, if we have time, that I'd like to dig into because it's one of those that it's definitely not off the radar for those of us who've been in the industry for a long time and understand the IPP world. But these large industrials are, um, I mean, they're, they're economies in their own right. And they move billions, if not trillions of dollars. So if we have a moment towards, uh, you know, later on, as we get into business model, I really want to use one or two of those as examples. But before we dive into the technology and your background, let's pique some folks' interest that might not um, understand kind of how far you've gotten. Can you give us a little bit of insight into how you funded the company to begin with, you, Bill, and perhaps your third, you can name the third co-founder. And what were the early milestones that um, you were looking for and that then follow-on investors were looking for that led you to where you're at now, a publicly traded company serving customers like Enel and PG&E? So our third co-founder, I should mention, Andrea Pedretti, uh, who's our current chief technology officer as well. So it was him. He was working with Bill Gross already. It had been collaborating. Uh, and I had known Bill for seven or eight years before. So um, we we started with a seed funding. You know, Bill Gross founded Idealab, of course, which is the longest running technology incubator, I think, in the United States out of Pasadena, California, arguably the most prominent. He's created over 100 companies um, through, uh, through Idealab. So we... We got together around the idea, uh, iterated it, and formed the company at the end of 2017. And we started right away with a, a one-quarter scale idea of this, uh, of a crane, essentially, that would lift and lower blocks. Uh, we tested the software out and then spent a lot of time looking at how could we make these composite blocks that were large, 35 metric tons were, were the first iteration of the product. How can we make them and not use concrete? Because, again, back to one of those three... Yeah. That's why you call it the eco brick, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, could we use material science and make these blocks in a way that would not require the production of concrete? And in fact, we collaborated with Semex, which is a large materials company, and then Material mm-hmm. Science Lab in Switzerland, which is where we founded the company, and found a way to just use the dirt from the ground, for example, to, to, to make the, the blocks. Uh, but also we could use waste materials. So there was a really neat circular economic uh, part of what we were developing early on. And, and so those were, we really wanted to s- test all of those out and, and, and prove out some of the economics at a one quarter scale. We built the model. Um, once we did that, uh, and we did that with a series A funding and we proved out the main premise around the software moving around the blocks and that we could make these blocks sustainably and therefore also avoid the cost of concrete, which is high. Right. Um, we, we then went to our uh, a Series B to go build a um, essentially a, a, a commercial scale system. So not starting with, you know, 250 kilowatt or a megawatt, but a full five megawatt system. So we did a, a large Series B funding. Uh, it was one of the largest in energy storage ever. It was 110 million as announced with SoftBank. Uh, wow. And That's, that would still be one of the largest. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. And um, so we... You know, if you're going to serve utilities, you have to be utility scale and utilities don't like to take risks, as you know, because they're providing a critical service or providing power that you, you can't just shut it off. Right. You, yeah. you have a lot of problems. So you, you must have a solution that's been proven and grid interconnected, ideally, to be able to go uh, begin to address that market, whether with IPPs or, or utilities. So we um, went right to scale. And that was another big milestone for us. And, and through COVID, 
even through COVID, which was a very difficult period, uh, we got our, our first five megawatt system grid interconnected in July, 2020. Oh, wow. So if you think about that, and this is in about two years time from essentially January, 2018 is when we really started mm-hmm. in Switzerland. By mid 2020, two and a half years, we had our first system up and running at commercial scale, grid interconnected. So we commissioned it the second half of 2020. Um, and, and along the way, we listened to customers. Customers came to see the site. Uh, we had a lot of videos then that we used because it was COVID still. We were, we were in that phase. And, and, um, uh, but that got a lot of interest from the NL Green Powers of the world and brought other investors on uh, along the way, like Saudi Aramco, the largest energy company in the world, BHP, the largest mining company in the world that, you know, out of Australia, but has a big global yeah. footprint. Um, and and so that's that was really important as a proof of tech grid interconnected, uh, and I think unique as we looked at energy storage and getting it proven out early, uh, and um, and then finally I'd say in getting close to the decision um, to take the company public, we uh, developed the new EVX design, and we announced that um, in conjunction with Saudi Aramco's investment. So those were, I think, some of the early. Um, the early milestones before the IPO, uh, before we started to, to look at uh, taking the company public. How much was raised in the seed with Idea Lab and the Series A that got you to proof of concept and, and ready to do that huge Series B? Sure. Uh, we, we raised a total of about 12 to 15 million, which was not wow. a lot when you think That's about it. That's a big it. jump. Yeah. And, uh, That's amazing. Yeah. And did and- you... Did you have early customers in that Series A round that you were that were doing on-site testing, like in uh, uh, um, strategics? No, no, no. Early, we we had a Menlo Park-based uh, VC Neo Tribe that that led uh, the uh, the Series A, and and a few others, a few other uh, private investors and Ideal Lab investors. I personally invested in that round, for example. So um, this was to get this one quarter scale. Uh, done so that wow. the, that's why the the series a um yeah. was sized the way it was of course the big jump was to the series b where we wanted to go right to commercial scale because the feedback uh nico was just amazing from customers as we started to speak to customers around the world we were still a team of only you know 15 to 20 people back then but we started listening and and seating customers uh and getting out to shows and that's people really responded positively to gravity because they they all knew pumped hydro. They all loved it, but they yeah. needed a way to go build something that you could still bid, build today. To your earlier points of the environmental ecosystem problems with building pumped hydro, and it's still not very co- wasn't very cost effective. A lot of concrete, so a lot of a lot of issues to solve there. And um, so people loved what we were doing. We got great customer feedback, and that led us to accelerate to a larger Series B. And 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 given we felt this urgency to to get to market. So to Bill's credit, he's known as an idea guy, right? Idea Lab. He's been by, by many accounts a genius in that regard. And he's also very strategically oriented around how to bring money to bear, how to actually fund these these projects, turn these ideas into businesses. He's done it many, many, many times. So I, I'd love it if you could put me in the room where you and Bill and Andrea, it was Andrea, right? Yes, Andrea Pedretti, yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Pedretti are thinking about, a business is half- uh, coming up with a good idea and the other half selling it. <laughs> and I think it's genius. And I hadn't heard this from you guys yet. Um, so obviously the the narrative has evolved as well. It's genius that you didn't go after traditional storage in the, in the like renewables or solar sense. Like nobody in the solar industry talks about hydro. It's like an afterthought. It's a whole other sector. It's a different, it's a different wheelhouse. 
Can you put me in the room where you guys are ideating around, like, what's the real thing that we are going to be evolving from or offsetting or attacking that people can get their head around? Because uh, I think that piece as an entrepreneur is so critical to be able to say, like, we aren't going to be able to walk in with the model of this. So we have to model it in their minds. We have to give them something they can attach to and say, not that this. Can you put me in the room for that? Sure. Yeah. By the way, it's a it, it's a fascinating discussion and a great question because and this is so important, I think, for entrepreneurs is people look at evaluating technologies, creating technology, but looking at what really is going to go meet a, a growth market segment that you could sell something at a price for the profit left. Right. So this is fundamental. And it, it first of all, it started with the market. So you really need to form a thesis. You have to you, you have to have conviction on the market you're serving, um, that there's going to be a ideally a large market need. Uh, and for something that you could bring to the table um, where maybe it's not being served properly. And that's because we looked at storage to your point on lithium ion, there was pumped hydro and then there was lithium ion and nothing else getting deployed. I mean, that, that, that was the way it is. And, and by the way, we're not far from that today. Hmm. Yep. And that was, uh, you know, that was five years ago. So as we looked at that, the first conviction we had to have is it's, you know, we, we believe there's going to be a growing and big market. We believe eventually the world's going to get get more passionate and, and more purposeful mm-hmm. on solving that problem. Um, so that that was a must believe. The third was what type of technology can you use to to serve this market, and knowing that the more renewable you get on the grid, if you believe that we're going to be putting more wind and solar on the grid, and we are, and we have been, mm-hmm. you know you're going to need not only storage but eventually longer duration storage. So today. Mm-hmm. Most of the market in, in the U.S., 95% of the market, most all that's getting deployed is solving this two to four hour problem right. uh, of the time shifting. And that's why lithium ion is, is the only r- real proven and deployable technology. It has some downsides. You mentioned some of them environmentally. There's some, some safety risks uh, and they degrade <laughs> over time, right? So just like your yeah. laptop or cell phone. So, <laughs> um, but as we, as we looked at that, we, we knew we weren't going to just be one of the many players looking at, um, you know, uh, different chemistries to optimize and solve that, that, that may not work out, right. That have a long mm-hmm. cycle or you have to build manufacturing to build it. So even if you prove something work in a lab, then you have to go put a ton of CapEx into building out manufacturing to build it. So we were thinking asset light thinking proven because time was important and getting a thesis on, do we think eventually long duration is going to be more important? And that's yeah. what led us to begin with um, gravity looking at gravity and uniquely rethinking pumped hydro and to do something more economical, more scalable, more round trip efficient um, and, and lower cost over, over time on a levelized basis. So that's why we started there, but always with uh, software, if you know, Bill Gross, you know, anything he ever does, there's always a software component. And it's just because of the, 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 what's happened with computing power and what you can do with software that it it not only is allows you to save money, but to, uh, all the automation and the things you can do yeah. um, to, to get to market quickly. So that's the, those, the, that was the premise and, and knowing that that software component was going to enable us. Cause we, we also realized early on there is no silver bullet in storage mm-hmm. uh, and, and really Nico shame on us as, as an industry. And this may surprise you uh, to hear me say this. I'm sure there'll be a few of those things uh, on this call. Um, but we, we are behind as an industry and in innovating to, to solve this problem. Maybe think about it. We have lithium ion that's being deployed, um, but but really um, nothing else in volume today because of economics yeah. or sustainability and just getting to scale. 
it's super insightful. And I'm glad that you brought in the fact that um, Bill is always focused on how to leverage software. Um, you know, being some, <laughs> being in, in Southern California, not in Silicon Valley proper, Bill has been a bit of a, of a, well, he's been a, he's been a shining light for tech in Southern California for sure. And a renegade in the industry because he focuses on uh, often rather than pure play software platforms, hard tech, and it's really hard to fund hardware. It's really difficult. Um, so that's one of the things I really, truly appreciate about what you guys have done and what Bill and Ideal Lab has done for our industry um, that, that doesn't get enough noted, uh, uh, enough mention candidly. Um, Robert, I'd like to back out uh, to 30,000 feet now and, and just kind of take stock of you as the entrepreneur. We've got a, I think we've got a good glimpse of what the product is and we'll turn back around in a minute to how, where it is going and where it is, where it is now, where it's going. But there's more to the story because you are an entrepreneur long before Energy Vault and you come from a line of entrepreneurs. I'd like to dig into that. Could you talk a bit about where you grew up and the nature of being one of six in a family of immigrants. Um, Coney is a uh, Italian, if I'm, if I remember properly, yep. um, last name. So bring me to, uh, to your childhood and how the environment you grew up in instilled in you those, those, um, those work ethic values and entrepreneurial spirit. Sure. Yeah. My, my, uh, my father's family, uh, his parents, uh, came over from, from Italy and they were, uh, from a part, uh, a central region, uh, in Italy called Marche, um, or Le Marche, it's, it's called the Marks, um, just east of Tuscany there on the Adriatic. And um, they were leaving, um, you know, a, a, an impoverished um, uh, area there, and they came over and they were uh, coal miners outside of Pittsburgh. So literally grew up with nothing. Um, and, and all the stories you, you hear or you read about or you read books about where the, the grandmother's doing all the laundry in the neighborhood, that was my grandmother. Well, my grandfather mm-hmm. was in the coal mines. Um, so you think about that growing up with that, um, and, and that's how my father grew up. And, and I really, that was, you know, that the work ethic he had and, and also, you know, this is part of the sort of the American story, um, you know, the value of education. So while he grew up working, uh, as well in parallel as going to school, my grandmother in particular always was focused on making sure he went to school, went to high school and the value of education and how that would they. Mm you know, that was a tool to basically allow them to progress and, and, and move on and, um, and get out of, for example, the working in the, in the mining area at that time. So that was, um, fundamentally, we, we come from that, you know, classic American story roots. Um, my, my father was, uh, uh, you know, a bright kid and, um, and did well got uh, to college and then actually got into medical school. So he was the first one from all my Italian relatives that came over that actually graduated from, a university. Wow. And, um, so, uh, that was the, uh, sort of the, the, the genesis. He met my mother who was American, uh, and, um, uh, and they, uh, they had six kids. I'm actually the youngest of the, of the six and, uh, but growing, you're the youngest. Yeah. I was the youngest. I was the youngest. Oh, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah. So I, uh, and so I got the benefit of, uh, therefore as the youngest, uh, there's always pluses and minuses. People always say you're a spoiled one, but actually, um, you know, you, you get the benefit of seeing the older ones of all and, ha- and the parents begin to have more time or, or with you as you're growing up. So I, I, uh, I learned a lot growing up and my father who, while he was a surgeon um, and also served uh, his country, he served as a surgeon um, uh, over in uh, Da Nang or for, in Vietnam. So he was a, 
a surgeon there uh, and then wow. went into private practice in Southern California eventually. And that's where I, I was born in Southern California at the Naval Hospital uh, there in, in Balboa. He, at his heart, as you can imagine, as, as I've described how he grew up, he was always an entrepreneur. So he was the one, he was the one doctor that was getting all the doctors together, for example, to purchase, to build and purchase their medical building. So yeah. if they're going to have medical space, they could actually be an owner and, you know, uh, and lease it from themselves and participate in that and own it over time. So he was That's always cool. that one that was um, uh, helping a lot of the other doctors that were more strict medical professionals and, and, and were, um, they maybe didn't have that entrepreneurial spirit. And in fact, we also kept a lot of the Italian traditions. So he always made wine at home. And then eventually he started a commercial winery in Temecula it was one of the first uh, 10 wineries out there back in, in 19, um, wow. uh, in the early 1970s. What was the winery called? Uh, our last name, Piconi. Piconi and, um, okay. and it eventually he sold it in 1997. Um, but, uh, we, we grew up, so I grew up, um, all my free time. It was just a family, small family winery, which anybody that's in the wine business knows it's a, it's a labor of love. I mean, unless you put millions into marketing, but we, we, um, so all my weekends and summers were spoken for in in a family business. And of course, when you're growing up that way, you're, you know, master of none, you're doing everything. You're working, you're making the wine, racking the wine in the winery during the day. Mm -hmm. And then you're working in the taste in the tasting rooms, uh, or out with the public or, you know, on the weekends, which is what I did. Um, so it, it, just growing up, it was always, um, we were always given a, a very strong work off the ethic. My father had a, a very strong one. So I always, he was someone mm-hmm. I really looked up to given where he had come from and, and, and how he always led his life and, um, our spirituality, our faith was always very important to us, uh, as yeah. a family. And, um, so, th- so this was a, a sort of a, a role model for me that I, I, um, I, I just, uh, was always, uh, involved in in doing many different things uh, growing up and, and for the family business. And then, um, mm-hmm. but also the value of education. So that was, that yeah. was foremost. I mean, that was for, for our family. Um, it all started there. I mean, you couldn't do, I couldn't do anything growing up to go do with my friends unless uh, I had completed all my schoolwork and everything. So that was some of the environment I, I grew up with in the early days. That's super helpful. Do you remember in your childhood having opportunities where your father directly or indirectly, uh, intentionally or inadvertently mentored you through entrepreneurship where you were able to ask questions or go along trips with him to really see how business worked at a young age? Yeah, this was a, a great opportunity because in terms of the, the opportunity to, um, to build something or make, uh, have a, a family business where you're doing multiple things, so wearing multiple hats, and to do that at the young age I did it from essentially yeah. from age five, uh, yeah. being a part of things, whether it was weekends, et cetera, but all the way through. And it was, uh, there were many moments because, you know, things in, a, in any business sometimes don't go well. It can be operationally, it can be with suppliers, very, you know, simple, basic things, right? Things don't get delivered on time or yeah. things fail. And, you know, temperature is very important when you're making wine, keeping mm. things at a certain temperature. Mm. Um, uh, and um, so if if things aren't working properly in your in your operation or your facility, you have to deal with them. And, but, you know, even in business there, I mean, I, I was, um, I don't know exactly why, I, I guess, cause I, I was a little, um, I guess better with people and, and engaging with the public and I liked it. And I, I, I'm not saying I, I never said I really liked selling, but yeah. I, I really loved, and I was passionate about the wine and talking about it. And people really liked that. And I was knowledgeable. It was unique as a teenager to be able to talk to adults yeah. About the process of making wine, why we focused on, for example, red wines versus whites, 
and, and just the whole story. So I, um, I'd say that the, the mentoring it came through um, everything that's involved in 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 running a business, and then I I did spend some time with my father when he would, um, you know, for example, if he would go golfing, I would go caddy for him and see hmm. him interact in, in that environment um, and with people. Right. So it was a it definitely I was very blessed and feel very fortunate that I got uh, number one. I I was fortunate to have both my parents most of my life. Yeah. Unfortunately, my mother uh, died after forty eight years of marriage. Um, but uh, uh, but I was very lucky that way, and I I was very lucky to have both of my parents uh, involved mm-hmm. and had that time with them growing up. Yeah, what a tremendous opportunity and tremendous story and testament to the work ethic of your grandparents instilled in your father, the desire to make something better of himself so that he could provide a better life for you all, and ultimately how proud he must be that you are not only providing a better life for dozens, probably hundreds through your career of individuals, but helping to improve uh, the planet that we all live on now. I have to ask then, since you grew up in a family of uh, you know, predominantly um, hardworking, higher education oriented medical and or sort of winery businesses, I have two questions that sort of stand out. One, is there a career path that you always thought you would go down, but ended up not doing? You know, growing up, because because I, I, I don't want to say I idolized, but I looked up so much to my father and what he had done mm-hmm. and his work ethic and um, I just thought I was going to be a doctor like he was. And, and of course, it's just interesting. It, it, um, there were a lot of changes in medicine in that time in the, going on in the 80s, which is when I was a teenager, um, and, uh, it, it, and changes in, me- in medicine and, and even how, um, uh, how doctors were, uh, were going to be working, et cetera. So it was a, because of that, my, my father, um, uh, when I went into university, I, I did my undergraduate at the University of Notre Dame, and and mm-hmm. and um, he he actually convinced me not to go into medicine, um, and uh, and actually go in. Um, he he was um, advising me at that time just to think about because he had observed me in I think working with the public and and observed me working in the family business. I you know math and things came uh, came well to me, and and the business side I had sort of a natural. Uh, intuition with things there. Um, so he actually convinced me to go into to more business and, and, and even some scientific fields. So that's, uh, that's where I gravitated. The second question was, surely from a now respected medical family in Southern California, m- most people don't leave California. That's where they go. I grew up in South Carolina. My only dream was to go to USC the, the USC to get out of South Carolina and end up going to University of South Carolina, the other USC. And, uh, and so I have to ask why leave California to go to Notre Dame? Yeah, fundamentally, it was, uh, I, I knew that if I didn't leave California for school, I, I probably would stay there my whole life. So yeah. part of it in yeah. me was wanting to get out of California. I mean, it's a beautiful place. I traveled a few mm-hmm. times to visit Pennsylvania, which I learned about humidity yeah. For the first time. Uh, but but also I went to a um, a smaller uh, school in uh, in Southern California and it was a, a Catholic school and I I was prioritizing as I looked at schools and universities I think one uh, university that that wouldn't be massive where you wouldn't just get lost but but also um, I prioritized looking at um, a university that also had um, somewhat of a sort of a faith based or spiritual aspect to it outside of just high academia. And so that's what, that's where Notre Dame came on my, uh, my radar screen. And it wasn't for, 
you know, their reputation in college football or anything like that. But it was really those factors. But getting out of California yeah. was was a part of that as well. And that ended up changing my life for a lot of reasons uh, in terms of my priorities after that. It, it did. So let's talk about that a bit. As I mentioned, you're a world traveler, and that is fun, part and parcel to the journey that you started in Notre Dame. Can you talk about the uh, how traveling back to the motherland, back to Italy as a student in Notre Dame changed your life in more than one way? Yeah. Well, yeah, very interestingly, I know today it's because of both, we have the internet that connects us with information mm-hmm. immediately. Um, so, so the world seems smaller today because we're with technology, mm-hmm. we're so interconnected. Back then, this was um, in the late 80s, early 90s, the, the big thing was getting more global. So, and actually, mm-hmm. uh, th- that was one of the things that a lot of uh, people were seeking out. And with companies, they were um, building out operations. Uh, you know, chi- there was the advent of what was happening with China and then becoming a bigger, yeah. uh, a bigger player in, in the economy, in the global economy, what was happening with developing places, in India, for example, and, and others. Uh, Brazil. So it was a, that there was one dynamic there that I was really interested in, in doing something overseas. Uh, Notre Dame had a, uh, a, a few, you know, programs all over the world. But uh, the other aspect for me was, um, while my father was, had two Italian parents, believe it or not, they, they raised him speaking English because they wanted him to fit in mm-hmm. and they didn't speak a lot of Italian to him. So he, he didn't speak Italian. And I always, yeah. I always wanted to go and, and learn the language um, and, and go meet my ancestors, uh, for example. Yeah. So I chose to study in Rome and that was a, it was just, it really changed my perspective on, on the world, on business, on the, where I wanted to gravitate to in my career. Um, and, uh, and it just opens your mind to, to culture the how important history is when you go to do business in certain countries and understanding you know, how those countries came to be um, uh, and through various cycles, world wars and things and how you interrelate and just culturally how you have to interact differently in different places. You can't put, you know, a U.S. version of the world uh, when you, you know, on a perspective on countries or make decisions or just expect things will be they are the way they are from your country. So that I know those sound like such basic things today, but back then it just, it, it transformed how I thought about things. I was just fascinated, really fascinated by just mm-hmm. history, by, and being, of course, in Rome, w- which has so much history and, and culture where you can study things in the classroom and then walk out and see them and, and go visit them. So it, it was a, a year I was 19. It was when it was in 1989 to 1990. And it just, it really changed my life in, in many ways, um, including yeah. I met, I, I should disclose, I met yeah. the woman that, that became my wife. Uh, there eventually we got married after university and we have, we have eight kids uh, together now. You mentioned that it was 1989, uh, as I understand, or if I recall correctly, you were there when the Berlin wall fell. Is that correct? Yeah. November of 89. In fact, I traveled that on the Christmas break. I, um, I traveled up to the wall and actually have a, still have today pieces of the wall that I, I chipped off. So um, again, it's just it's a tremendous time in history uh, and, and how fortunate I was to, to be there. At that time. Yeah. So you did not, you didn't um, start in renewables, but you've ended up in renewables that nevertheless, you, uh, you chose an, a career in energy straight out of Notre Dame. You, uh, and, and pretty much ever since with some, a bit of a winding path through healthcare and telecom that, yeah. um, that have no doubt influenced how you run the business now. 
talk about the decision out of Notre Dame to go straight into uh, Amoco, which then was absorbed by British Petroleum. Yeah, I uh, I did a, an internship my junior year after my junior year of college with Mobile Oil in London. So mm. because my sophomore year, um, I, I was so impacted by that year I had overseas, mm-hmm. um, I was able to get an internship also working overseas, which, you know, back then those were highly sought after, Hard. not only to yeah. get a, a very good internship from a big company, um, to set yourself up for your next year when you graduate and getting a good job, but to do that internationally. So I worked with Mobile Oil and, and because of that, um, of course, then when I went to look at jobs, I was on the radar of a lot of oil companies, Amoco being based in Chicago, they did a lot of recruiting mm-hmm. at Notre Dame. So I, right. I, I liked, I, I loved the, the sector because energy is a part of our daily lives. It's, it's the largest and has been, I think, one of the largest GDP sectors in the world. It, it's over a trillion today. And it's global, of course. So this was the other thing as I, that, that led to my choices. So yeah, and, and uh, so I, I started um, right out of school with Amoco that, uh, and very interestingly, through the career, I'm returning to energy, but but in renewables. So it's a and there's a great. It just was a great path, career path that I had that along the way that influenced mm-hmm. a lot of things, even on Energy Vault, that yeah. synthesize yeah. and and bring together. So I'm happy to to chat a little bit about that because it's it, it's really interesting. Yeah, I'd like I'd like to explore it for maybe five or so minutes. I think it would to be it would take twice as long to really dig into all the lessons learned. Yeah. But as I mentioned in the intro, you are an entrepreneur. This is not your first rodeo. <laughs> Even when I look on uh, LinkedIn, I had to do a little bit more digging and there's a fantastic article that we'll link to from Notre Dame who did a bio on you that points to your having built and sold companies. Could you talk through, talk me through the process of leaving oil and gas, going to Alcatel and then uh, eventually going into the healthcare industry and then finally finding your way back to energy and, uh, and uh, somewhere in there, Bill Gross uh, approached you and you said no, which I love. So I'll let you tell the journey. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll update on that too. But I, so uh, I spent the first seven years at Amoco and, and mm-hmm. as uh, will come with no surprise given this discussion so far, um, uh, about half my time there I spent overseas. So I, I, I went right into to chemical manufacturing. So I worked for the downstream uh, chemical side at, uh, and went to a large operating plant. I, I can't, I'm not one to just stay in the head office. I need to understand uh, how we built our products, what's behind the main businesses that result in the, the you know, a, a company uh, and, and the how and what's behind and, and how to make mm-hmm. them better. So uh, I I worked in the, the chemical manufacturing side and then moved to the worldwide engineering and construction side to, to build plants. And I got on a very large project based in Europe. And of course, the the engineering firm they choose to help us is common in that industry. You, you choose a large EPC firm. Uh, mm-hmm. was based in Rome. <laughs> so uh, nice. so it's just because I spoke Italian uh, uh, almost fluently, but uh, enough. And because uh, I'd already worked in that technology, um, I was able to get on a, a, that job. And as, a, as an expatriate, so I returned to Rome, not as a student where I couldn't afford anything, um, but uh, then as an expatriate. So, um, yeah. it, And expatriates in the 90s, uh, when it was not as common to have fluently English speaking for, um, foreign nationals, uh, yeah. expatriates had a great life. Yeah, it was, it's much different than today. Well, yeah, it's just, uh, it was, it was a really neat experience. We had, um, we had one child at the time when, when we went yeah. over there and, um, uh, so is, you know, in the late, this is getting to the late nineties. Now we built that plant. There was this thing called the internet at the time that was mm-hmm. starting to evolve. Yeah. Uh, and, um, 
uh, and I was just fascinated by what was happening with technology. And in particular, mm. the, what software was, uh, the use of software that was, um, that, uh, was utilized in just the development of, um, what, you know, what, what ended up transforming a lot of, um, how we not only communicate, but how we interact, I mean, how we do right. business, um, and just the power of that in, in the transformation. I mean, you could have technologies come to market that would fully disintermediate a business. I was just fascinated by that and the power of software. So in the late 90s, um, Amico merged with BP, uh, and I was working in the new entity there in the Chicago area. And um, I, I went, I, I took a year off. Um, uh, Kellogg Northwestern had a, they're, they're the only top five program that had a, a one-year full-time program. Uh, and I'd already gotten the five kids. I, so along the way, right. I ended up with uh, uh, quadruplets for our second child instead of going from one. In your first job, like this has been the first seven years of, yeah, of work. Yeah, I was 27 years old. 20, oh yeah, they were, yeah, they were born in May 1997. And um, so because I had five kids, I, I couldn't do a two-year full-time program. I, I, but I wanted to do a full-time. I wanted to take yeah. a year off. And so I did that and then changed career paths. And I went into to Bell Labs and Lucent Technologies and networking and software um, and I did that for seven years. And that's where I actually um, worked in a lot in technology, but started to run, mm -hmm. run, bis run through product management. And then as a general manager, running um, parts of the business. So those were my first roles, sort of P&L responsibility then in my in my early 30s and a lot of transformation going on at that time in networking and telecom and and software. Um, so it was a, a tremendous time. And, and again, another transatlantic merger at uh, Alcatel and Lucent and then Nokia eventually. But, uh, but after I, I, after that seven years, that's when um, I started to run my first businesses independently. So I was recruited mm -hmm. to run a, a telecom company called Spirant Communications. It was a, a public company, London FTSE 250. And then out of that, that's when I got into to, to private equity as well. So I was recruited for roles running businesses and that's got me into healthcare, which was a uh, another very interesting transition. So after learning about the power of software and, and how that could transform, what was interesting is what I did in healthcare was focused on innovating on service and availability, meaning we developed business models and, and operating models to manage uh, the uptime of systems, the high-end diagnostic imaging systems in hospitals, because, you know, availability or uptime of that system, the MRIs, the CTs, the PET yeah. CTs that were screening for cancer, you know, you, you didn't have the the luxury of having those systems down, and but we innovated on service, doing multi-vendor service across GE, Philips, and Siemens to, to provide that engineering and, and technical field support across multiple technologies and innovated that way and used software, interestingly, to do things that the main OEMs weren't doing. So, uh, and we put in place one of the first models in Europe to do that and successfully we sold a few companies in that in that space that i was i was a part of and and then so that was an interesting to small companies like aramark <laughs> well yeah aramark actually bought one of the the companies and yeah. then i uh, and then there was a large fund that bought um one of the companies that i grew and ran uh in a very high growth environment there in europe so it was um it, it was a very interesting aspect because you you learned the importance of service and availability and how you could innovate and differentiate not on the product the hardware, but how important the service was and availability and uptime. And that it's just an interesting, if you think about that journey and then coming back when Bill Gross called me um, and coming back into renewables and, and sort of mm -hmm. he ignited the passion, not of energy, but the urgency around renewables. And I, I've 
I started to to dig deeply into this the problem that was happening with the heating up of the planet and and how important energy storage was going to be through him. I mean, through he brought yeah. pulled me into these things, and it, and it was just interesting. If I think about what Energy Vault is today, with our, even our first gravity system, it's the integration <laughs> of the sophisticated civil and structural engineering in the system, mm-hmm. um, material science, so d- that that allows us to avoid the use of concrete and and reduce cost in materials. A lot of people wouldn't naturally think that, but it's a core competency of ours. And software that automates that whole system and makes it all happen, um, that the system can be unmanned, uh, essentially can operate dynamically with software and AI platforms. Makes so it's, a, it's just interesting. My career evolution and, and through having a lot of real good experience with big companies and mergers and global, but, but the entrepreneur in me, I, I really excelled in um, as we got to both private equity and then and now uh, Energy Vault being the first company uh, of co-founding and now, um, you know, taking it up through its IPO uh, that was in February of 2022 last year. In a world where lots of solar technology providers seem to blend together and have little differentiation, it truly is necessary that you are able to dig deeper, get more resources and tools and have more breadth of opportunity to learn and share with your core partners. Trina Solar is leaning in to the many requests for the Trina Hub, the new global partner portal dedicated to giving partner training courses and certifications, as well as a full asset library of pre-built and co-branded marketing resources for channel support. I'd like to encourage you to try Trina Hub for yourself see how it helps grow your solar business and develop or enhance your digital marketing ecosystem. Learn more and sign up today at mysuncast.com forward slash Trina. Hey, if you're looking for a way to maximize the ROI for your next utility project, I would like to point you to SunGrow's new SG4400 modular inverter. This new innovative solution will reduce capital and operating expenses because it arrives already on a skid with a step-up transformer. It's built using four 1100KW modules so that if one of them fails, well, the other three keep powering right on through as the DC and AC protection are completely separate between the modules. You can learn more about this fantastic new product and more at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. You know, one of the things that most entrepreneurs have to ultimately deal with when growing a company is what seems like this invariable trade-off or sacrifice that must be made, a choice that needs to be made. I can't even imagine looking at the trajectory of success that you've had, how you've managed to keep what on all accounts sounds like a very healthy and happy marriage and relationship with not five, but eight children while growing multiple businesses and now founding and taking public a company. I mean, my... I truly, I want to say like my hat's off to you. I, uh, I sort of kneel at the, at, the, at the stage that you all sit on and, uh, and am humbly asking for insight from someone who's been there. How do, you, how do you do it all? How do you manage to keep the family together and, and set appropriate expectations, et cetera? Can you talk a minute about that? Sure. It's, uh, it's really been one of the most, I think, fundamental, important parts of my, my career. And I do get a lot of questions about this because there's a, a natural assumption that people will make that to do uh, and to make a big impact uh, in, in whatever that is, it, it could be a company, make a big impact in uh, 
um, in a community and, or on a global basis that somehow the trade-off there is you can't have a big family or you can't have more than one child or two children. And, and that, I, I, I think fundamentally, if you think about, you know, the, the purpose and uh, you also hear people say, you know, you have to divide your personal life uh, from your professional life. And, and I've just never believed that. And I'll tell you why is um, you have to be driven by a purpose. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of that has to do uh, and the most important thing in, in my life is my family. Uh, and especially, you know, when you have children, um, you have a responsibility to, to others and you want to see them thrive and, and do well. And you get a lot of uh, satisfaction of, uh, about that. And, and that's where the purpose, like in, in what I do and, and at any company I've been at, whether it was in healthcare, we were trying to improve the, the quality of patient care, for example, and providing a very good service and uptime of the systems. And in what we're doing now in renewable energy, the purpose for the world, that, that's got to be very well aligned with, um, you know, how you um, work and interact uh, with your family. Because a lot of the times I'm spent away from my family doing that, that's got to be for a, you know, you know, the right reason. And, uh, and also your children are interested in what you're doing. So there has to be, I think, some alignment uh, around that, that you're, you're, you're to have a mission, for example, in an energy vault around solving a critical problem in energy storage that can help enable a renewable world. That's our, um, you know, one of our, I guess, our taglines of the company, enabling a renewable world. And I think that with that purpose, and when you're building a family uh, and building your family life, I, I, I think it's tough to to try to separate those things because uh, I, I believe it's all interrelated. So I, I think it, it all starts. And when you have eight children, obviously you have to have, to have the right partner. Um, so and and because you you know you have to make choices, obviously, and and you you both can't be there for the children all the time. So you have to have the right partner and agreement on how you're going to support the children when you have that many. Now we got to five. Very quickly, the, the question we, we get all the time, and I just got it last night when we were at, at dinner, um, it, it out, out for dinner was, uh, and then you had more, so after the quadruplets, and then you actually had, uh, you know, three more, which which we had them one at a time after that. Um, uh, so it was a, uh, it, you know, these are things that, that for us are um, the, one of the most important points uh, or reasons of why we do what we do is supporting our family, and in particular, Energy Vault, if you look at what we're our main purpose is to ensure we have a great planet for the future. And that's the future of our children, our grandchildren, um, et cetera. I, my first grandchild uh, came just uh, under two years ago in, in December there in, uh, in 2021. So very, um, uh, so, uh, so a lot of alignment between what, what, what I do professionally and, and what uh, I do with the family and, and it's, it's all integrated. Yeah. So the words integration and alignment also you've mentioned uh, a, f- a few times your faith, uh, they all, for me, form this this circle that I love the words that you used, integration and alignment. They point to a very intentional uh, communication protocol with your wife, first and foremost, and your children and your team, um, setting expectations. One of the things that lots of entrepreneurs learn the hard way. and uh, And I can imagine that while it was difficult for children um, to the children to move around, uh, you gave them an experience that few get, um, and it's certainly I, I imagine you're very intentional about it, which is that they get to see how the rest of the world operates. They get to integrate uh, other cultural aspects into their identity, 
and uh, and become world citizens rather than you know sort of U.S. citizens, as it were. Yeah. By the way, it's a it is a it's a great point, and I think w- one of the things with the um, I've spent much more time with the younger kids now than I was able to do with the older kids when I was um, you know running global businesses and uh, you know R and D centers in China or India. So I was in my 30s on the road quite a bit. It's, it's interesting with COVID being, I, I was home all the time and yeah. uh, I I really um, valued all that time. And it was just amazing how you, when you're home all the time, what you see that you may have missed. Not, mm-hmm. uh, I didn't re- regret, uh, you know, doing what I did because I was, it was always purposeful and in alignment with yeah. my wife and where we were going as a family. And, and all those experiences are, have served us very well now, but it is a um, part of this, you know, this goes back to this, global piece that I had growing up. And I realized how important that was for um, my, for, for me anyway, to understand other cultures and peoples and and how they think and how important uh, respecting those perspectives and not making judgments based on um, wh- where I come from, for example, but understanding and respecting and, and learning and educating yourself about other cultures and, and peoples. And that's where I think the ability for us to, for example, we, we lived eight years in Switzerland, which is hmm. a very international community there. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and had spent time in Belgium uh, before earlier uh, in my career. And, and so that's given the children a tremendous experience. Um, and again, it's, you know, things have been flow in families. It's, it's not, it's never all perfect, of course. Never perfect, um, yeah. And, but, you know, I think alignment on, uh, on where you're going and your spirituality, which, which for me has been, uh, important and is very important for our family. Um, you, you know, that just gets you through all the ebbs and flows mm-hmm. and the, the ups and downs. Yeah. My personal experiences over the last eight years, building my own company, the more aligned I am with my wife, not only the happier, um, the outcomes can be, but the easier it is to get through more quickly the, the, the troughs, cause there are always troughs and friction, but um, being, just being brutally honest with my wife about what I was going through and not hiding it from her. I think most entrepreneurs do that candidly. That's the thing is yeah. they hide, they hide things away from their, um, their, their close friends and their wife. Um, and it, it, in my conversations with you, I get the sense that not only did you incorporate your wife into the decision-making, but you incorporate your children. Uh, uh, we don't, we don't really have time for it, but I would encourage folks that know you well to ask stories about how you've taken your children on trips with you uh, yeah. to see uh, among other things, senators and uh, and journey with you into the corporate world, and I think that's super important, especially with the uh, the younger kids now that I've uh, engaged them and and spent more time with them. So it's all part of the uh, um, uh, of getting and prioritizing my time with them, but but integrating them in what I'm doing in my business life, which they're tremendously fascinated by and interested in. In any event, um, is one of my sons who's 17, Christian Luca. Uh, came with me to Washington D.C. Uh, twice, uh, actually, uh, and uh, as you know, there's a lot of policy focus right now, and with the IRA uh, focused on uh, helping to enable and support uh, more rapid adoption of renewable energy, and energy storage now is getting adopted and incorporated in legislation. So I frequently get to D.C. and meet with congressmen and women, uh, senators, people that influence policy. And uh, and get to share what we're seeing on the front lines and where they can be helpful. And I brought my son twice. Actually, I asked him the second time, would you like to come with me again? And he said, absolutely, yes. And when I say I brought him, I didn't bring him and we just go to dinner and then he waits mm. in the hotel. He attended every meeting with me um, and wore his suit. Uh, and, uh, and what was amazing was 
even the the senators or the congressmen and women, they were really impressed by that and and established a dialogue with him uh, also and and thought that was you know very interesting that that he had that interest. Uh, but also it gave him the chance to be sort of a fly in the wall and in, in listening in on these discussions, uh, policymakers learning more about, of course, what what their dad does a bit and um, and uh, and how you interact in these environments. So it was a uh, it, it's been fascinating in a great way, not only from the meetings from the day, but then, um, you know, the dinner at night. And it, it's just been been fantastic. I want to drill down on that just a minute. So I recently had. Um... I had Martin Pochtaruk from Hellion, the co-founder of Hellion, the manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he talked about the just the how integrated as a CEO you must have the the understanding of policy and the 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 foundation that policy serves for furthering, for enabling the business model that you want, right? He has spent a lot of time with senators in um in Minnesota, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Minnesota, where they have manufacturing and, ha- and the, the, the process of being courted by and brought into Minnesota and sort of doubling down on manufacturing. And he talked about going to Washington as well and, and spending time there. Elaborate a little bit on, as the CEO of a startup in a new sector that in many ways revolves, lives and breathes and dies by um, the impact that policy can have, trade policy as well as tax policy. How do you... Th- go about or how would one as a CEO think about their role in policy? And what do those conversations sound like when you're sitting with senators? Like what, what is it that you talk about? Well, some of it really starts with education, especially, mm-hmm. and it's really me educating them, uh, especially when you're in anything that's uh, newly disruptive or new mm-hmm. tech that's coming to market. Um, and as an example, people understand solar and wind, okay? And they understand they've heard about energy storage and that's, it's important mm. when they think energy storage, they think batteries. Yeah. Right? And so, um, that's about as far as it goes. Yeah. And as legislators start to look at, um, incentives and, and encouraging more rapid adoption of renewable energy as they have mm-hmm. been. So solar and wind have had those incentives. Energy yeah. storage was out of that discussion until recently Wow. Uh, but then you get to another level of detail, and this is why as a CEO and, and as any leader in a company that um, relies on or is influenced by policy in terms of your executing your business model, you have to drop just a level below uh, and have them people understand that energy storage doesn't equal batteries or what people think is, uh, you know, our lithium-ion batteries, that there are many different ways to store energy. And in fact, some of the most innovative ways are some of the newest and therefore the legislation should be tuned to those newer areas that that are lower cost, more sustainable, uh, and, and potentially can have a bigger impact. But mm. they're in their earlier stages. We as a company uh, went through all the funding rounds and had a lot of strategic investors, took the company public. Uh, so that's we we're already on a trend of moving from startup now to scale, um, you know, a few hundred million of revenue. But um, it's important that education process uh, and uh, which made it very interesting doing that when you have your son there or, or any of your children that you involve in that because then they're getting educated on why that's important as well. So it's it's really fundamental. Um, and as a leader in a company, I, I think, uh, you know, behooves on on the leadership teams of companies to ensure you've got a good 
a good strategy and communication path there as policy is getting developed. Yeah. We could spend an entire episode just on policy development. Uh, it is it is one of the foundational cornerstones of how our industry uh, has has thrived over the last ten plus years. Like if we if we think about the business model for storing electricity, storing power uh, in any form, you've mentioned that pumped hydro, um, you know, large reservoirs, um, very common over the last hundred years plus, as a way to store this kinetic energy, right? In creating Energy Vault, you had to challenge a number of assumptions in the energy sector and in business model. Would you help unpack some of the assumptions that in the first few years, maybe first, yeah, I mean, you're not not that old of a company, but in the first two to three years, you really kind of stacked up as like, we got to attack these assumptions and build a business case for why they're either flawed or how we can, how we need to modify thinking around them. Yeah, I, I'd say the first thing we had to address is which technology mm. that you could use cost effectively and sustainably to mm-hmm. store these electrons because it's a it, it remains a tremendous challenge. If you think about today, wind and solar is much cheaper than fossil fuel, fifty to seventy five percent cheaper uh, now, one to two cents a kilowatt hour versus the let's say the lowest cost fossil today, fully amortized, so already spent fully amortized is closer to five cents, a combined cycle natural gas. Um, so the, the problem is storing those same electrons. So you can generate them with wind and solar, but because that's intermittent, you can't predict it. You have to store yeah. it. Unfortunately, to store those same electrons today, and even with pumped hydro, you're looking at multiples of the cost to generate it. So 10, 15 cents in reality in, in, in how things were mm. at least a few years ago. So I think one of the things we had to choose around as we started is what's the fundamental technology that's going to meet our requirements of get to market quickly because it's urgent, do it low cost and do it sustainably. And so you, we had to, we rethought, for example, we had to rethink pumped hydro, meaning rethink hydro gravity. It, it exists. It's proven. It's not an idea. It's the law, right? Gravity. Um, And, and you rethink that um, and it can get the economics the way you want them. And, try to optimize the sustainability because anytime you're going to build anything, if you're using concrete, that's not the best way to right. do it, but you can offset it or you can replace it with using material science as we did with our composite blocks. No right. concrete in those. So that was just the underlying assumption challenge there was that the most cost effective way to leverage gravity for storage was pumping water uphill. Right. Correct. Yeah, And you said, well, wait a minute, we've got, we've got, other ways that this can be done. There are other mechanisms and tools at our disposal that weren't available 50, 100 years ago, including software. Including software and just also um, thinking about mirroring that the good of pumped hydro where you're, mm-hmm. you're taking something and at potential energy and converting it to kinetic energy um, at large scale and taking the good of those things but avoiding the destruction of wildlife ecosystems, the right. use of concrete, the high cost, sure. uh, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, the, those, that's what we challenged and then innovated around doing something as a, as a long duration focused uh, energy storage system. And of course the software, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago without the advances in computing power, software, machine vision, and even AI, where you can do these things dynamically, you know, you, you, it takes a lot of the, the cost out as well. So we've talked about the eco blocks and, you know, a lot of folks, remember the early days of energy vault if they were familiar 
um, which was this kind of crane thing outdoors. Um, and the product and company have truly evolved over the years. Um, you talked about the quarter scale model and then the quarter scale model, um, what was delivered in the quarter scale model as a proof of concept is not what, um, you just recently delivered as an EVX system, 25 megawatts in Shanghai to prove, to prove that your, your eco block system and, and your gravity based, um, product can evolve. Could you talk through, talk me through the sort of the, from, from the f- first early customers, how the product evolved to marry your desire to be ahead, sort of leaning forward and needing to meet where the market is today. Sure. I'd say there's two main paths for that. One is with the gravity system itself. And I'll start there. Um, after we did the quarter scale, we went to full commercial scale, five megawatt and grid interconnected it. Uh, and that was important. That's what led to mm-hmm. the larger series B for SoftBank. Uh, and that was important, not only just for the sake of proving the technology at scale, the round trip efficiency, which was measured third party over 75%. And that was not optimized. That was we wanted to just get to market quickly. We we wanted to prove everything out at scale, and then we could optimize that higher as we did with EVX. I think doing that is a thread. And then, even then, listening to customers and getting feedback where they loved um, everything we did. Uh, NL Green Power came to visit. They wrote a 95-page uh, uh, technical feasibility assessment uh, on the product. A Saudi Aramco came in uh, and visited and ended up investing BHP. We were still listening to customers, and that's where we, um, they, they said, gosh, we love the sustainability. We, we know pumped hydro, we know gravity, so we love that aspect. The, the low levelized cost, you know, economics, it doesn't degrade over, over time, so you get a very good, you know, 30-year life, very low levelized cost, low operating cost, uh, and it's a building. Uh, but they, they did, the customers gave us two areas of feedback, which was more around, hey, can you shorten it instead of that rotating mm-hmm. crane? Um, you know, people may not want that in their backyard. Could you simplify that? And, and, uh, so we took, that's where we came up with the building model and cladded it. So it's really just a building. And the second thing they said is, could you do it in a modular way? So we could define ourselves to you. We want 25 megawatts over eight hours, 200 megawatt hour, or, uh, we want, um, 250 megawatts over eight hours. So for that would be a, a two gigawatt hour storage system. Right. Give us that flexibility, make it modular. And so we took that feedback and then uh, actually iterated the product after that five megawatt system was grid interconnected and came up with EVX, which is what we're now building at full scale in Shanghai. Um, and then the second thread I'd say is very early on, as I mentioned uh, earlier in the podcast here, what was this focus on software and that there's no silver bullet in energy storage and whether the needs are going to be very short duration or for some applications, long duration, or maybe multi-day. So maybe you need to back up a city or back up uh, a data mm-hmm. center or, um, or, or provide a solution in a microgrid. Um, the reality is for the customer, not one technology would solve all of that. Yeah. At the same time, we didn't want to, try to develop ourselves to be everything to everyone. Companies that fail try to do that. But with software, of course, we developed that platform not only to manage gravity, but we um, accelerated its use and flexibility to manage uh, integration of shorter duration solutions like lithium-ion. 
um, came up with some innovative ways to make it more safe as well and achieve a higher energy density uh, with batteries. So it's not just software, but there's hardware differentiation. And even um, as we announced just uh, uh, earlier this year with Pacific Gas and Electric, ability for us to use green hydrogen and what's the largest announced project to date and will be the fastest one to market by June next year um, of having a, a multi-day backup solution for an entire city, the city of Calistoga that got ravaged by the, the fire a few years ago. So, um, so I'd say that in terms of the evolution of the company, not only getting our gravity system here to market, but uh, in parallel, getting a software platform that allows us to solve various problems with different technologies and really become that energy partner, that that innovative uh, partner for, for many different customer sets. You've mentioned a few times being customer and solution focused. And as evidence of that, one of the things that probably surprised most of the folks in the industry is that one of your early wins is not a crane or, or eco block project or even uh, a hydrogen battery uh, solution. It was lithium. Can you talk about be again, meeting the need, meeting the customer where the customer is and the market where the market is um, and allowing a suite of solutions as a, as a CEO thinking through like, uh, what's a suite of solutions. So my, my take on this is so that you don't get pigeonholed as that, that weird crane energy storage company, because you have more in the, in the skunk works in the R and D more in the innovation realm that you bring into market. Um, so how, how did you address that question when your friends are like, what lithium project for energy vault? Well, that was a very interesting one because that one in particular, the one that's just uh, gone live here in Southern California in Orange County, mm-hmm. it's based in and around a residential neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we know the customer, Wellhead, uh, Hal Dittmer, who's uh, just been 40 to 50 years of success in California with peaker plants and helping now with the energy transition and doing more hybrid systems, peaker plants with, in this case, lithium ion, because yeah. the market in California is still short duration. So, yeah. um, we had a relationship with Hal and he knew about our new software uh, platform and, um, and knew about, uh, you know, knew some of the team members that we had because it really starts there with, with people and capabilities that you bring. Right. Well, we're a new company. We're made up of some of the most experienced people in the industry. Um, so uh, starting with that, um, he had a challenge. He had a, a, a small footprint where his contract with Southern California Gas and Electric with 69 megawatt over four hours. So to do 275 megawatt hour, the problem is all the existing solutions, uh, and in this case, even uh, Tesla's solution, could only do 50 megawatts of power with the number of batteries they could get in this limited uh-huh. site. So you were, the challenge there was the energy density to get a higher energy, energy density to enable the 69 megawatt that you needed, that Hal needed to be able to sign a contract with Southern California Edison for 69 megawatts over four hours. Um, so that's where we entered and our engineering team uh, led by Akshay Ludwig in this case, you know, came in, looked at the site and we designed a site with our proprietary hardware um, uh, design uh, of that layout to mm-hmm. achieve a higher energy density. And we could get enough batteries in there with our hardware design. And then combined with, of course, the way the software integrates that design and performance. That makes sense. Um, to achieve something that the Tesla could not in that case. And that's how we won that deal. So it was a combination, both software and hardware differentiation. And the other thing we do with our software is we help with safety, which is, you know, one of the critiques of lithium ion is there is safety risk and what's called this thermal runaway that, that can right. happen 
if uh, if things aren't managed properly. Um, and we have a way with our software to avoid if there is a to avoid where a single point of failure will shut down the whole system. So mm. uh, we have a way to manage if there is a safety event, so the system can still operate. So mm. that's this customer focus you mentioned that where we focus, listen, and solve the customer's problem very much like we did in Calistoga to, to come to market with a renewable solution for them versus natural gas, which was the right. only other alternative for that. Well, let's talk about that one uh, um, next. I have one quick question, though. How do, I, I don't think I even, I, I, I think I know a fair amount about, and I'm making assumptions now about Energy Vault and what that hardware solution is, but how does Energy Vault's hardware differ in such a dramatic way that it would give you a better power density on the on the site? I really don't understand that. Yeah, it really comes down to how we architect the batteries with the uh, mid-voltage transformer and the inverters. Mm. Uh, and also, um, we have a unique ability to look at um, stacking the batteries as well. Well, that was going to be my assumption is that you're able to put them in vertical orientation, like a better overall where most, most of these battery manufacturers use one plane, yeah. right? Well, you know, Flag look, this plane. is a great debate that we don't have time for here, but, you know, you <laughs> can be a product-focused company or more of a solution-focused company, and there's a lot of value to be in just pure product-focused where you're standardizing right. and this is what you get. We tend to take a little different approach with customers where um, we, we could have had that approach, but in our case, our hardware, and in the end, we looked at a stacking design, um, but in the way we solved it was through a, an interesting integration of the product in that footprint uh, yeah. in design where we could do it all on one level and still get the 69 megawatt. But again, that requires uh, a little more uh, uh, time dedication from your engineering team, but we're able to, to solve it in a, in a very creative way. And so help me understand then what's novel about the pg e solution for Calistoga? The alternative, as you said, was more than likely a, a, a natural gas solution. Yeah, I think I think there uh, they went through three RFPs uh, because the the California utilities, of course, are uh, really mandated to use renewable solutions. The city of Calistoga did not want to um, always have these diesel generators brought in, uh, mm. not only for the emissions, but they're loud uh, and um, uh, and a lot of problems with that. So uh, they were looking at an alternative, and they thought they the only one that was going to be cost-effective uh, was natural gas. Um, and in the end, um, we thought about solving that problem uh, with using a green hydrogen. So where we don't, we don't make the green hydrogen in this case, uh, although we could, um, mm-hmm. but we just buy the green hydrogen. There's a, a, a tank uh, and a fuel cell yeah. um, because this is a backup system. So it's not going to be fully discharging yeah. every day, right? Mm-hmm. It's there for... If there's a uh, what's called a PSPS event, which is a power safety uh, uh-huh. shutdown um, uh, that uh, planned or unplanned, uh, this system can can then turn on as a backup. There's a small amount of lithium that we integrated. So another interesting thing we we always think broadly about solving the problem and bring technology to bear, not just one. So we aren't single threaded, I guess, in our mindset. But yeah. In this case, to meet the need of also Black Start, it's called Black Start, which is quick start capability. Right. It's got to start from no. Yes. Yeah. And a grid, what's called grid, grid, grid forming, forming capability, yeah. which was required. Uh, we integrated a small amount of lithium ion and with a hydrogen fuel tank and fuel cell, all managed by our software to have to give them a renewable solution for the first time. And and the residents and I, you know, one of the things I, I like to do is I, I love to get involved with customers directly is. And after the project was announced, 
Um, there are some procedural items. One is the California Public Utility Commission approval. So that was done. But there's also the municipal, the, the city approval. And there's a mm-hmm. town hall. And I'll never forget because I was actually on a plane, but I was able to dial in and listen in through the plane Wi-Fi to the town hall where they were debating doing the solution. And it was just amazing to listen in on that and how um, uh, after all the questions, of course, on, hey, hydrogen, green hydrogen, is there a safety risk and what have we done um, to make sure everything would be safe? It was amazing to hear the residents then toward the end talk about how, wow, um, they're really excited to have not only a renewable solution, but a solution that's not going to be noisy and actually expressed surprise that this was being brought through Pacific Gas and Electric because of the history between the town and the Uh utility and some of the issues in the past. So we, of course, were very happy to be a part of that. Our team was there facilitating the Q&A. So we were there to help with the question and answer uh, in the town hall. And it's, you know, when you're impacting the residents, I mean, that's where the rubber meets the road of your solution. It's not about the commercial side of the deal. It's you see the impact you're making on on people's lives. And and what's more important than that? Well, you're making an impact on more than the people of Calistoga's lives. You're making an impact on all the folks' lives who've chosen to come along for the ride at Energy Vault. Could you talk a bit about the the critical role of hiring and talent and how uh, that is sort of part and parcel to the core mission of Energy Vault? It's been fundamental from the beginning. And, and I'll start with um, having built companies before and, and also worked in larger, you know, Fortune 100 public companies. Mm-hmm. You learn a lot along the way. You, um, you know, you make some mistakes along the way. And sort of all of that knowledge and everything that I've learned in my career really went into something that is such a tremendous opportunity where I had the opportunity to build something from nothing, from zero, mm-hmm. and build it. And that starts with people. It all starts there every day. And I really wanted to build something unique, unique as a culture, uh, wanting to be the place that all the best talent wants to work. And meaning you have a culture you're building that I'm obviously in this case, we have a, we have a great mission, right? Decarbonization. So who, when you think about purpose, you you, we're already there with doing something that's going to be good for the planet. So that checks the box for a lot of people these days. Um, But people can get a paycheck from anywhere, right? So it, it, how do you create a culture um, that people really want to be a part of? And that was important to have a, a, a few different, themes about our company. So innovation was absolutely going to be one of those and how quickly, and that came very quickly through our initial hiring and building, getting to the market and coming on the scene. And, and really in four years from beginning, from just the seed funding founded the company to filing to become a public company. Um, mm-hmm. So that means you've gotten the backing of important investors. In our case, it was large strategic companies that are very well known uh, as well as, um, you know, you build the customer, the, the customer base and the commercial base up where we already built a good funnel of projects. Uh, and, um, and in the end, it comes down to uh, the, the culture here that people want to be a part of. And in some cases, we got very deep domain and experienced people in energy. In other cases, some of the people that functionally may have been the best at what they did and just were very much attracted to to starting on a path of renewable being a part about that purpose, but also in some cases leaving a culture they didn't like and and really attracted to the things that made our culture unique. And for us, a lot of that starts with, you know, not only how we collaborate as a team um, and, and the innovation that's a part of everything we do. um, We we create a pretty open collaborative environment uh, that encourages um, 
you know, the employees to work together to achieve a goal and, and to take some risk along the way to, to do that. But also there's a, an important core value here, and it's the most important core value we have, and it's humility. Mm. You, you know, books have been written about this uh, in, in the leadership style, but uh, that's one thing in my career as I've built it and um, been a part of companies. One of the most contagious things that just motivates people to do things they never thought they could do and to really, um, you know, throw themselves down on the tracks in front of the train for their coworkers uh, and their company has to do with um, humility. And that, and that starts at the top. It helps you. Yeah. I think, you, you know, you, you never want to drink your own Kool-Aid. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. always paranoid about something coming around the corner that you don't see. And you you will never see it if you're arrogant or you're just saying, hey, mm-hmm. we have the best technology. Everyone, of course, is going to want it. We we sort of start with a different premise of what problem is the customer trying to solve? Um, how do we best solve that? And that's what that's what's informed our R&D and our innovation in developing the product. And, you know, we think we have really good ideas, and we do, um, but that always starts with being informed by an important problem being solved there in the customer environment and also a recognition that, you know, um, our innovation uh, can be good, but there's a lot of different ways to solve a problem that, that yeah. may or may not be created here and thinking about, therefore, how do we bring that to the table to customers? I love that. One of the ways that you uh, also described, so part of the mission that you guys are on in a previous call that you and I had, if I recall correctly, you said, we know that we're successful if the best talent in the industry wants to work here. And um, I think that is in, emblem, emblematic of a company that places the value in the people and the brain trust, not in the solution, right? And uh, trusting that if you've got, uh, as as Jim Collins says, the right people on the bus, you can figure out how to drive it in any direction successfully. Let's let's turn the corner here, head towards home base, if we will, if you will. I want to just ask a few questions around lessons learned, and I'm curious around specifically as you think about what it's taken to get the energy vault technology to market and to bring eco bricks into reality to. Uh, to 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 public to get an AVX online, twenty five megawatts. Uh, what if you had to change your opinion about something that you thought had strong conviction about, but were willing to say, "I, I got I have to change my tone here." Yeah. Well, look, um, it reminds me of uh, there's been many things along my career where there are little tidbits you get from different leaders you work with. But one of them is there's never a wrong time to make the right decision. And so, as you um, it, 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 and as we evolved, um, as we built and inter- grid interconnected our first, what we call EV zero, just because it was our first implementation. That's the, the transformer like six arm rotating crane, which was yeah very innovative and lifting and lowering and lifting the eco bricks and things. But along the way, hearing the feedback from cu- customers and we had a choice to make, do we look at a redesign of this, taking the customer feedback, we're, we're proving out everything at scale but is there a way to put all of that in a different form factor? And can we challenge ourselves to, to even look at a structure, even though it's gravity, you need height, but to have a minimum height that actually would be lower and still right. economical. So I, I say that's, um, that took a lot of um, uh, thought and, and in some sense, some courage to also uh, go to the board and say, look, we, we think we've got something very good here. However, we believe we're going to have something uh, that can even be more broadly applied mm-hmm. to 
different climate uh, areas, different environmental sensitive uh, areas. Um, if we actually redesign that into something that would be an enclosed structure and much like a building, you know, the ease of permitting, which is very important yeah. here, building a structure. So um, that was a, a very important decision along the way that we took while we were finishing Mm-hmm. EV0, so the, the, yeah, the five yeah. megawatt system in Switzerland. While you're finishing the thing that, that you've, been, re- you've been raised money to build. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, along the way and um, and incorporating a lot of the technology in R&D. So there was a reuse of everything. It was more the repackaging. Uh, yeah, because you now have to divide and conquer at this point. Yeah. And I, was, I had a previous guest before. He said that when we made this decision, not unlike what you're doing now, we went to the engineering team. We literally separated them. We said, now you guys are going to go off and build the new thing. And you guys are going to effectively maintain and build the old thing. And they didn't talk to one another. They didn't want any, the two sides to like taint each other's view of the world. <laughs> and it was very clear that like these guys over here were going to, they were being like basically um, worked out of a job by these guys. And the, they, and they had to, they had to find camaraderie uh, in that because they both were necessary to keep the business alive. Similar to there's never a wrong time to make a right decision. Is there any advice that you got early on in your career that you feel was served just as a foundational insight and, and you even pass that along now as guidance? Uh, sure. Um, you know, one of the things, and I, I've had to say this a lot, and whether we're doing some financial planning, broadly looking out and or even designing products uh, and mm-hmm. solutions, but it's, it's a concept of being roughly right and not precisely wrong. And, and this okay. was from a, a leader that was I met at Lucent Technologies, uh, who was one of the pioneers in wireless, uh, a guy named Jim Brewington, who would say this in the in his leadership team meeting sometimes. Uh, as as you do, you know, you're evaluating things, and there's a lot of real time discussion going on uh, in Q and A, and um, you know, in any new technology business, anything that's innovative, you're doing, um, you have to get to a certain point where you got to make a decision. Mm. And, you you know, trying to get that last 10% or 15% or even 20%, uh, well, that may be important at the end of the day. Time is uh, something that typically works against us, mm-hmm. and you have to be able to make those decisions. And you don't need precision at 90 to 100% to, I think, get to the right decision. And that's uh, uh, hence that concept. And that can be applied to many different situations. Mm-hmm. So that's that I, I've used, and I've even had people um, – some of the people that's worked with me in the past, they'll, they'll remind me of that. Cause I, yeah. I do use it a lot when we, can you say it again for us? Jim's Jim's comment. It's concept of being roughly right. Yeah. Versus precisely wrong. Mm-hmm. Meaning to, to try to be so accurate with an answer that there's no way it's yeah. ever going to be right because you, you can never get that level of precision versus where you want to get to, to be, you know, to get to a decision uh, with a certain amount of information Yep. And, and go with it. And it's, um, so that's served me well. And the, the, um, the, there's, uh, other things you learn along the way that I, around some of the best operational companies I've worked with Danaher being one of them, mm-hmm. Danaher was the best performing public equity in the world for 25 years, 25 years, uh, averaging between 19 and 20% return wow. equity. And they, um, they, they sort of built and refined a, a tremendous operational cadence and model, um, and and around also a culture of um, setting expectations, and, and and that was important because um, that's how people understand what they need to do uh, and how they need to be thinking, uh, and um, and just being comfortable focusing on solving problems and, and talking about what's not working. So there's 
other cultural aspects from where I've been that that I I really tried to incorporate in in building the culture here, and it really it's, uh, it, it, it's uh, definitely been working well. I'll say it has. Um, I appreciate you pulling from multiple areas of your career as well. Thank you for for sharing that. I didn't realize that about Dan. I'll have to go back and do a little bit more uh, digging to better understand yep. that business as well. I've got a few more questions here uh, and they're more around how you operate your personal operating system. Do, do you read? I, uh, I'm, I have a personal conviction that readers are leaders and leaders are readers. I'd love to know if, if you consume books as a way to help guide your thought. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's something you have to make time to do generally, but um, there's always a, a pretty big payoff and especially where you find those times uh, you know, on planes or as a part of a, an exercise regime. And today with tech and audiobooks and things, you can make that time. But, but it, it's definitely, I, I prioritize getting some time, uh, for that. Not as much as I would like. Arguably. Yeah. Audiobooks are a gift. Um, is there a book or two that come to mind for you that have had an outsized impact on the way you think about the world and business? You know, wh- one of the things, uh, and again, this was earlier on in my career when I was just starting to take on general manager roles mm-hmm. uh, in the telecommunications industry. But I, as a part of that, and when you work for big companies, one of the benefits of that is they invest in leadership and they actually want right. you to take time out mm-hmm. uh, in these things. And and so I picked up a few things along the way. One of the, one of the books um, that, that I use with teams is um, called the five dysfunctions of a, of a team that yeah. I always, it, it's a, it's such an interesting one because it, the whole one of the main uh, themes is in around building this climate of trust. And that was always, they mm-hmm. used a pyramid. It was always the bottom part of that pyramid was climate of trust because without it. Yeah. Um, and if you go back to what I, I mentioned about um, the best performing teams and of course, and you know, what's great about reading these books is people go and study companies that have excelled versus companies that didn't. And, you know, good to great is another one that it was required reading actually at Danaher. So Danaher has a whole program when you joined the company. Um, yeah. And, and so those comparative analysis and what was that common thread uh, across companies that were successful, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, Nico, very rightfully, interestingly, I don't know if this came out of your discussion with Bill Gross, but Bill Gross is one of those people that always looks at, Hey, well, what makes a startup successful versus not? And he went back and studied it. This was the subject of a Ted talk and you should go mm-hmm. or readers that haven't or listeners that haven't seen it. Bill Gross did a Ted talk on, what makes a startup successful and did research on 150 companies, some of the ones he created and others, he always thought, you know, he's a big idea guy. He always thought it was the idea. It was the innovation. And yeah. of course the number one thing that influenced that success was timing. <laughs> so, so you, so these things, I think along the way uh, are, are fundamental, but from a, a book perspective that the, the five discussion of the team was one. And then there's one more set of books that was interesting and it gets to this, um, it, it was a set of books by Simon Sinek that he's still writing. Mm-hmm. The, the first one was uh, Leaders Eat Last. Mm, and, and this so is good. Get, that was the one I always recommended to people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he did a second one called um, Start With Why. Yeah. And it's around, this gets to purpose. But remember I mentioned about humility being our, uh, our most prominent um, aspect of one of our values in the company. Yeah. Well, a lot of that came from, you know, some of these books and, and the, what, it's amazing what they, what they look at and look at performance and, and what employees are willing to do what, you know, when there's trust in the organization across the organization. And I mentioned this earlier that the employees are willing to quote unquote, you know, lay down their lives for, for each other. 
to achieve a goal. Uh, uh, and, um, and, and when you have that, um, and, uh, you know, hence the culture you want to create is if, if there is trust across the organization and you've got people aligned on, you know, taking a hill, cause there's a lot of military analogies through the, through the books that, yeah. that Simon used. Um, uh, and, uh, in fact, he interviewed, a uh, in the, um, leaders eat last, he interviewed a general, the reason then mm-hmm. they interviewed in, in the Marines that, um, that the officers ate last. Yeah. Uh, so it was just, I think those things is part of motivating an organization and getting alignment and trust with people. Mm-hmm. I seeing that, that the leadership is putting the employees first, putting their platoon first, putting the, right. the you know, the, the organization first, you know, you, you, you have to walk the talk and, and they see that every day. I mean, it's, it's very obvious, um, I think within an organization. So yeah, thank you. Those are wonderful books. And I'll link to Bill Gross's uh, TED Talk as well. Well, I could ask you a ton of questions, but the one that really stands out to me before I ask the final question is uh, whether or not you have a particular, is there a consistent practice? Could be a more routine um, or, or something that you do regularly that gives you, uh, that yields a huge lever in your life and, and give you, gives you impact? I, I think it, it's really carving the time out and, mm-hmm. and really every day every day. And for me, I do that in the morning. Uh, it, it just works out that way for mm-hmm. me where I, I start early. Uh, I, um, would love to sleep more. I, it, it's hard for me to sleep more than four to five hours straight. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just how my, my father is the same quote unquote disease. Um, and I'm sure I'll, I'll learn to, to improve on that. But I, I carve out time to a, a bit, um, get in front of the day that's ahead because mm-hmm. we're a global business. A lot of things happen, you know, during the night, wherever I am. So there's one thing about getting ready for the day, but the other thing is not forgetting what, you know, what may have been the priorities or things to follow up on from the day before. And and I think teams, um, it's real important for priority setting for your teams and that things aren't getting missed or um, uh, that there's a a good way to follow up. Uh, And so that's, it sounds like something so small, but it's such, it's so important for individuals in the organization that see that it, whether you're solving a problem or something gets raised, that it's not lost somehow yeah. and, and fallen on deaf ears. Um, so I think that, that, that carve out of that time. And, and, uh, again, it, it'll be different for different people Yeah, is, is really important. And I, I tend to use, I try to work in some type of physical activity or, or exercise in the morning, um, into that. And that's where a lot of that thinking, um, uh, happens as well. Yeah. I, I, I've tried numerous times to start early, um, and, uh, and used to sleep on four or five hours or rest on four or five hours of sleep. But thankfully I've helped to, I've, I've overcome the, the disease as you put it. <laughs> um, I, I, somebody recently said to me, I thought you were a morning person. <laughs> and, and I said, uh, well, perspective or perception is reality. Um, yeah. Yeah. If folks are so inclined, Robert, uh, how could they both engage with you and uh, also with your company? How how can you be found? Well, um, we have a a website, Energy Vault mm-hmm. does, where um, we get a lot of people requesting uh, information or even mm-hmm. wanting to be a part of what we're doing through our our website. They can also, and they're welcome to engage with me. I use LinkedIn as a as a platform uh, where I connect with people. Yeah. Uh, uh, as well. So that's, um, uh, from the public side, um, that's a good way that I, I try and, um, stay in touch as well. I'll, 
I'll post things out there from time to time or forward things on uh, either our progress um, that we're doing or, or interesting articles um, yeah. at times. So I think e- either either of those ways are, are good ways for, for us to get in touch. We'll definitely link to your LinkedIn and encourage folks to follow you uh, as well as try to connect with you on on that platform. And uh, in our final question, it's uh, it's forward looking, but in a way it's backward looking. Um, you know, if we looked out to 2030 and we've unlocked this big, hairy, audacious goal of, uh, of achieving a renewable grid penetration of, of 70, 80, 90%, um, what did we get right? What's in your crystal ball about the, the success that we achieved and what it took to get there? It, I, what we must have gotten right to get to that by that time frame mm-hmm. has to do with an alignment across uh, geopolitical boundaries. So that means it's global. Um, uh, that means it's, um, uh, you know, it crosses borders. Mm-hmm. And that means that some of the largest companies and organizations in the world are, um, you know, making the choices and the priorities um, to, to achieve a goal, which um, today people would look at by 2030 to get to that 70, 80% renewable penetration is something that might be impossible. Mm-hmm. And, and I think most people would say that would be very difficult to achieve. Yeah. What keeps me, you know, encouraged and optimistic and having relationships with, for example, Bill Gross and Idea Lab or, or companies and even the people here that are doing amazing innovation and innovations and in technologies that are removing carbon from the, from the air itself or mm-hmm. we're creating substances that actually can absorb carbon dioxide and, and things, looking at alternate technologies to help us achieve the goal um, that even outside of the renewable penetration, it's about uh, how do we reduce the heating up of the planet mm-hmm. overall? And we have renewables to do that, but there's a lot of other um, technologies and ways we're going to achieve that goal just so we can get the planet back to where we were. Uh, another way um, to think about that is how do we get the level of CO2 emissions back to where they were, for example, in 1970? Yeah. You know, and can you... Can you do that? And the answer is yes. With if you see some of the advances um, in uh, in some of the newer technologies, it mm-hmm. it, it keeps uh, it, it keeps me optimistic. Well, I as well am optimistic, and I'm also encouraged by uh, pioneers like you, Bill Gross, and your other co-founders who bring businesses like Energy Vault to the world. Robert Bacconi is the chief executive and co-founder of Energy Vault. Thank you so much for taking time out of what must be an incredibly busy schedule. We're honored and grateful to have learned from you here over the last hour and a half. Great, Nico, thank you and uh, appreciate the invite. And it's just been a great, uh, great discussion with you. So thank you very much. All right, Solar Warriors, what a breath of fresh air. Robert Bacconi, uh, thank you for your generosity. Thanks to the team who helped grab your attention. I, I just want to note that I stopped by and gave my business card to the team at America Clean Power and someone in the organization saw through the opportunity to reach out and connect afterwards and and invited me to interview Robert. So thank you to the folks that man the booth at these trade shows. It's it's actually, it, you never know without asking. It's just proof that you got to ask. You don't get anything in this life without asking uh, except death. Uh, So thanks for persevering through another interview. I hope that you more than persevered, but you 
persisted thanks to the insights that you were gleaning. What are those insights? What did you learn from Robert in this conversation? I'm dying to know. I've posted in LinkedIn my thoughts about this episode. So if you click right there in the description, you will have a link to the show notes for this episode. And in somewhere on our website at mysuncast.com, you'll easily find my LinkedIn page where almost assuredly this will be pinned or very recent. And I hope that you will take a moment, go leave a comment, let Robert and myself know just how much this episode meant to you, what you learned from it, what you're taking away. What questions did I miss? What would you like to engage Robert? And he said that he's on LinkedIn and I'm sure he'd love to engage and, uh, and answer your questions. So please take a moment and do that. And if you, my fellow fellow math, are an infinite learner and looking for more resources, I've linked to the many things that I referenced here just a minute ago, Bill Gross's video, the books, and all the other resources that helped me prepare for this episode over at mysuncast.com in the show notes. Again, you can click through your in the, in the description of the podcast app that you're listening through right now. And I'd be remiss to not mention and thank the sponsors who help make this show possible for you each and every week. They pay so that all that you have to afford is your attention. Thank you so much to SunGrow and others who have helped keep Suncast free to listeners. You can find out more at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's how you can learn ways that you could partner with us to reach thousands of clean tech champions and solar warriors each and every week, twice a week. Till then, remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's truly half the battle.